Colossians chapter 3 on page 1184. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you are here, that as we are gathered, Jesus is here. Lord, we thank you that you are ready to speak to us, to share your character and your will and your ways with us. Lord, make us hungry, hungry to know your word better, but above all, to know you better and to worship you and to serve you more fully. Be with us just now as we read your word together. Amen. I can still remember getting off the school bus on that spring day in 1987. I was counting up the years, and it's a long time ago now. I was a a teenager at the time, and I was quite into music, so I, I remember getting off the bus and being very excited, hurrying to the record shop, um, going in and laying my probably $5.99 on the counter and being given an LP. I'm looking around, I see Paul there, he might be the only one too young to know what an LP is, but everybody else here will know. A, a, A nice big record, not one of these wee CDs, nice big record in my bag and hurrying home with it. Went up to my bedroom, took the record out of its sleeve and and set it on the turntable. And I reached for the volume knob and I turned it up. Very, very far up. Much farther up than my mum liked it to be up, but that's, that's what I did. I lifted the needle, put it on the record, and one thing I miss about, about using CDs is the start of a record. Do you remember it? The, the, the crackling? Uh, as the, the needle goes in that first bit of the groove before the printed music kicks in. There's something very, very, it was frustrating at the time, but, but you miss it now. I put it on and, and there it was. And then the, the music began to come and it was like no music I'd ever heard before. First of all, so faint you could hardly hear it was the sound of a, a swirling organ type instrument, I don't even know what it was in the distance, getting gradually louder and louder. And then the guitar joined in, and the guitar began to get faster and faster and louder and louder. And then the drum and the bass joined in, and before long there was this this incredible sense of momentum in this song. It it really was was going, and it was a very, very long introduction to a song. You're probably wondering, what's he talking about? I'm just describing to you the first time I listened to The Joshua Tree by U2, the album that was to make U2 into one of the biggest rock bands in the world. And the opening song on that record is called Where the Streets Have No Names. By the time this massively long intro has been going for almost two minutes, you're just, you're just all ears waiting to hear what those opening words are going to be. And those words are this, I want to run I want to hide. I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch a flame where the streets have no name. 
Let me try and explain what those words are conveying. This song grew out of the experience of the lead singer of U2 of growing up in Dublin in a place where the streets most certainly did have names. In a society very much like the one that you and I live in, where the streets had names, where people's jobs had names, where our schools have names, and where all of these things define us. Let me give you an example. Belfast is a place where the streets have names. If somebody tells you that they grew up on the Shankill Road, and another person tells you that they grew up on the Falls Road, that makes all the difference in the world. Already we've made massive judgments, massive decisions about who those people are. People's jobs carry the same sort of labeling. If somebody tells you they're a barrister, and someone else tells you that they're a dinner lady in a local primary school, you've got a different view of those two people. We're, we're labeling them, and we make assumptions about who they are. We live in a world where the streets have names, where people's jobs have names, where everything we use to, to box people, and we use it to make decisions about who is worthy of respect and who is worthy of love. Friends, it's the same throughout the world, and I guess it always has been. It was the same in Paul's day. In Paul's day, the first century Greeks looked at the primitive Jews beside them and looked down on them, thought them intellectually inferior, people of the past. The Jews, on the other hand, looked at the Greeks and said, well, they're good-for-nothing pagans. Both of these communities looked on another group of people and called them barbarians, people who didn't share their level of civilization. But even the barbarians needed somebody to look down on. So they picked on the Scythians, a group of barbarians from north of the Black Sea. They were the lowest of the low of that time. Friends, it seems that society has always been like this. We've always judged people. We've always decided who is important and who isn't, who deserves to be loved and who doesn't. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us it's not on. It's not on in the kingdom of God. Look with me at verse 11. In this new people that God is creating, Paul says, there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Paul is talking about a place where the streets have no names, where it doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or not, whether you're intellectual or not. All are equal, all are accepted, and all are loved. And that place, of course, is the church, the new people of God that he's been talking about here. By the way, notice what Paul doesn't say about the church here. He doesn't say that difference doesn't exist. Well, actually, the way it's worded there, he almost does seem to be saying that, but that's not what he means. The difference does exist. But Paul's point is this, that none of these distinctives are ever to be used to make judgments among the people of God. A person's ethnic background, a person's 
wealth or status, none of these things are important at all in the community of God's people. Whenever we read a verse like this, like verse 11, and we try to imagine a place without any divisions like this or without any prejudice, where everybody's given equal respect and love, I don't know about you, but I find it hard to, to really get there. I find it hard to imagine that actually working on the ground. In verse 12, Paul goes on to tell us an amazing truth that can make all of this possible. He reminds us that those who are in Christ are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. If I left it there, I think that would be giving you a very easy answer. What difference does that make? What difference does it make that we're God's chosen people, that we're holy and dearly loved? How does that help us to look past the prejudice and the the one-upmanship that's so common in our society? Well, well, let's think about it for a second. If you and if I are entirely convinced that God loves us, that He thinks there's nobody like us, that He made us just as He made us, that He's chosen us to be His in Christ, and that He's making us holy, if we believe all of those things, we're going to be much less prone to the kind of sinful things that Paul's been talking about in this chapter. For example, show me an angry man, and you show me somebody who isn't confident that they're entirely accepted. Somebody who feels that life has been unfair to him and that people have been unfair to him. Somebody who feels at odds with the people around him. That person will always be angry. Show me a woman who's full of prejudice and keeps people at arm's length. And scratch beneath the surface of that woman's life. Is it not the case that often we find that she herself has been rejected? She hasn't been accepted? That at some point, prejudice has been held up against her? Friends, all of us will have had those experiences, but God has done something more fundamental in our lives. He has chosen us. He's making us holy. And He loves us. If we really, really believed that, and if we believed that more and more and more with each passing day and week, we would live different lives. We would find ourselves accepting one another much more freely. In the second half of verse 12, Paul gives us some idea of the kind of changes that are possible, the kind of character that we can put on. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are the kind of people that we could be with this new life of Christ growing in us. And I I would say as well, this is the kind of place our church could be uh, as we as a community grow in these ways. By the way, in, in the first verses of, of chapter 3 here, Paul is presenting us with a massive contrast. Look again, glance again quickly 
to verses 5 to 9. You see there his list of anger-related sins, sexual sins, sorry, and anger-related sins. Have a quick look at those and then compare them with what we have just read in verse 12. Isn't there the world of a difference here? There really is. This is chalk and cheese. The person of verses 5 to 9 is an entirely different being than the person of verse 12. Suppose for a second that you were going to move to a new town. And as, as you went to research a couple of houses that you were thinking of buying, one of them was in a suburb where the people were like the people described there in verses 5 to 9. That summed them up. That's the kind of people they were. That's the kind of neighborhood it was. And imagine that you went to look at the the second house, and it was in another suburb, and the people there were the kind of people of verses 12 to 14. Where would you want to live? Where would you want to spend your time? It's so obvious that I'm just trying to make a point. Paul is saying that the church is to be that second community in a massive contrast to the community outside of the church. Whenever people come in through our doors, they ought to be experiencing verses 12 to 14 and and escaping, if you like, from verses 5 to 9. In the rest of this passage, and down to verse 17, Paul gives some advice on how we could go about creating this kind of community. He says, bear with one another. Now, we all know what that means, don't we? Have a look around you. Look at the people in front of you, beside you, and if you're brave enough, turn around in your seat and look at the people behind you. Anybody brave enough to do it? We're Presbyterians. We like the back of each other's heads better, don't we? Look at those people, look them in the eye, and say to yourself, these are the people I've been called to bear with. Because that's what Paul's saying here. Nobody else. We don't get to imagine or to choose the people who we bear with. These people. These are God's people in this place at this time. And we're to bear with one another. I think to bear with a person, maybe it means to let them be themselves, even if they're a little bit strange or a little bit odd, and not try and change them into me or into anything else. To bear with them, to accept them. That's what we have been called to do. And the secret to not finding this very, very difficult at all is to remember that other people are bearing with me. If we can remember that, we'll be all right. Bear with one another, Paul says. It's almost like he's saying, you're stuck with this. This is the people of God. Bear with them. Reading on in verse 13, 
Paul urges the Colossians, forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think when Paul's talking here, he might, he might gently be alluding to, to Jesus' story of the unforgiving servant. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Do you remember that story? The servant who was forgiven a massive debt, but then would not forgive a much smaller debt. Well, that's the, that's the position we're all in before God. God has forgiven us everything. So we must forgive one another. We, we just must. It's so inappropriate for us to have an unforgiving attitude in our hearts when God has forgiven us so much. In verse 12, Paul gave us a, a very tangible image. It was that of putting on clothes. It's as though he's saying, put on the, the vest of compassion, the shirt of kindness, uh, uh, and so on and so on, until you're fully clothed in all the virtues of this new life. Now, in verse 14, Paul hands us the overcoat. He says, above and over it all, put on love because love's the thing that binds it all together. In a sense, if you and I were to be people who, who gave ourselves to loving this community of people, all the other things that Paul lists would naturally be part and parcel of our behavior. Love is the key. Love is the overarching theme here. Paul goes on here, and he gets more and more specific about how, how we live this out in a community in the church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, he says in verse 15. We're supposed to be as much at peace with one another as the members of a body are. Whenever I'm speaking here, different parts of my body are working entirely in unity to make that possible. My mouth and my throat and my lungs are all working together, and it's just happening naturally. Paul says that's the kind of relationships we ought to have in the church. Like parts of a body, we, we are naturally together, and we're at peace with one another. Whenever he says be at peace here, by the way, the, the image is of almost of Christ's love like being like an umpire between us. Christ's love is to be the thing that makes sure that even when we have our, our disagreements and our fallouts and our arguments, and by the way, I don't want to suggest that those won't happen. Let's, let's keep it real. They happen in church, and they happen in church almost as often as they happen outside of church. I don't think that's a problem, that we have, have disagreements and that we may argue from time to time. The key is how we resolve them. And here we're being told, let the peace of Christ, let that unity that you have in Christ prevent you from ever going too far, prevent you from fracturing relationships above all. Christ has brought you together. That's it. Bear with one another. In, in verse 16, Paul goes on and he describes what our corporate worship should be like. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I love that phrase, that, that idea of the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. That the Word of God becomes so much part and parcel 
of our church life, that it becomes part and parcel of all of our lives. Folks, the church should be as full of, of wise teaching as a car park is of cars and the swimming pool is of, of water. That's one of the key ingredients of a healthy church is the, the teaching of God's Word. And Paul mentions here another one, and it's one that always flows out of a healthy appreciation for God's Word. Whenever we're learning more about God and who He is from His Word, we always become a joyful, praising, and worshiping people. I think it's lovely that this evening we've given ourselves just a little bit more time and we've been a bit, little bit more relaxed about worship, uh, using music to praise God. And I'm, I'm very grateful to the musicians who have led us in that this evening. That, that's a very natural part of, of this new family of God, this new life that God has brought to us as a community. Let me finish there with verse 17. In the last verses here, Paul has put Christ very much at the center of our relationships. He said there's no room for anger, there's no room for prejudice, it, it must be kindness and love because you're all in Christ. He's put Christ at the center of our relationships. In these last couple of verses, he's put Christ at the center of our worship. And finally, in verse 17, he says, if there's anything else in your life, Christ's at the center of that too. Look what he says. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. If you're in Jesus Christ tonight, you can do absolutely everything in your life. You can live every part of your life for Jesus Christ. You can do your work, whatever your job is, for Jesus. You can raise your family, recognizing that Jesus is Lord over your family. You can follow your hobbies and your, your sporting interest, all of those with an eye to, to Jesus and His will for you. We can do absolutely everything, and we're called to, with Jesus at the very center of our lives. Friends, this letter of, of Paul's to the Colossians has one aim in mind. Paul wants to see these young Christians come to maturity in Jesus. And it strikes me that maturity comes the more we understand that every area of our lives is space where we can live for Jesus. Every area of our lives is where He is Lord. While we still keep it to a Sunday or while it's a churchy thing, we're far off maturity. We have a long way to go. But as we push back the boundaries and live more and more of our, of our lives for Jesus, we're growing and maturing in Him. We've been thinking here this evening about the new people of God a place where, where anger and division and sexual immorality are left behind, a place where kindness and gentleness and patience come to the fore. We can't do this on our own. 
We can't do this by trying. But God wants to work this in us if only we'll let him. Let's invite him to do that just now as we pray. Let's pray. Father God, as we read in your word and we see how a life before Christ is described, we recognize much of our own lives there. We know of the the anger and the malice. Lord, perhaps of the, the greed and the lustfulness and immorality. We know of these things in our lives. But Lord, we, we know also that you would change us, that you've given us a new life, that we can put to death the things of the past and that we can walk in a, an entirely new way. We can be made into wonderful glowing people full of the love of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us that gentleness and that patience and that kindness. Lord, give us the love of Jesus in our hearts. And Lord, as we pray that for ourselves, we pray that for this church, this community of people. Lord, as we, as we grow and as we have much to praise you about, Lord, help us to grow in love. Lord, help us not to leave that behind. But Lord, make that our hallmark, that we're a community of people who love you and are growing to love one another. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.